All right, so uh, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're continuing our series in that book. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Our scripture reading is the first 10 verses of chapter 6. So listen as I read this to you now. It's the word of God. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to doc- the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And thanks be to God for his holy word. So I would ask you right off the bat here after reading that, are you satisfied with your calling and condition? What I mean is, are you satisfied with where God has placed you in the world? With your abilities? your opportunities, your wealth, your position, your status, with the place that God has put you to serve Him. I'm not asking if you're satisfied with your growth in the grace of God. Surely you do not think that you love God as much as you should, that your gratitude and obedience to Him is what it ought to be. With your meager attainments in these you ought not to be content. But I'm asking about your satisfaction with your status in the world. We live in a fallen world that God has cursed. And in it, there are shortages and injustices and discomforts of all different kinds. There are many occasions to complain about our situation in life. But if you understand the nature of our rebellion against God, then you know that we all justly deserve whatever God may send our way. We deserve nothing but wrath and judgment from his hand. Jacob was right when he confessed to the Lord, I am unworthy of the least of your mercies. If you really believe that, it will change the way you look at what you have and what you don't have. You understand then that in our fallen in our, in our first father, Adam, we declared war with our maker. 
and we maliciously thought to dethrone him that we might enthrone ourselves in his place. You know that if God treated us with justice, then we would be eternally destroyed. Because this is all true, it's only right that you should be content if you have less than eternal condemnation. You should bear patiently whatever troubles and afflictions that you may have in this world. But if you're honest, then you surely have to admit that it is often hard to be content with your status in the world. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 recognizes that Paul writes concerning those who occupy what we might say is the very lowest place, or at least a very low place in this world. He says, I read it a minute ago, let as many bond servants, that's a full-fledged slave, that's the strongest word, there's like seven words or so that use of slaves, and that's the strongest one. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Count their masters worthy of all honor. What about that? And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. A bondservant who is under the yoke. That speaks of a slave whose calling is to toil at his master's command. God does not exempt Christians from such lowly places. Slavery was very common in the time of Jesus and Paul. And many of the members of the early church were actually slaves. Paul addresses them in many of his epistles. Such slaves were purchased by wealthy men and for, to labor for them. The slave in view here is said to be under the yoke because he was to toil sometimes like an animal. A yoke, of course, was a wooden or an iron device that was placed upon an oxen to, to hook them up to a plow. The slave is pictured as under such a yoke, not literally, but that he had to toil. The word for the slave's owner that is used here is despotes. So it's translated master here. The word emphasizes the lordship of the master. He was the master who commanded the slave. And how does God's word say that Christian slaves ought to regard their own masters? They ought to count them worthy of all honor, is what it says. Now that says a lot. Not just to honor them outwardly, but to actually count them worthy of all honor. Not only does this speak of their work, but that they should work for them in a way that is, uh, is respectful or whatever, but also of their attitude. That means that they are to regard them as those who deserve their diligent service and respect. It means their work is not to be done grudgingly. It means that their work is to be done without complaining. It means the servant is to speak respectfully of his master to other servants. might be very tempting not to do that. And to other people and even to himself. He is to count his master worthy of honor. But on what basis? 
how can we count any mortal man to be worthy of all honor when we know what is in man? Good question. I'll get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to bring you into this. Do you see how this word about slaves applies to you? I know that you are not slaves in the sense that these people were. But if a slave was required to have this kind of attitude toward his master, then what does that say about the relationship that you have toward those who are in authority over you? If those, if those are the bottom of the those at the bottom of the social strata are to be content with their status, how much more ought you when you enjoy a much better status? If a slave is not to resent but to honor those that God has placed over him, how much more you? It doesn't matter who you are. You're to, it doesn't matter who you serve. You are to count that one worthy <clears throat> of all respect. We sometimes hear reports of chief executive officers, CEOs of corporations who fail to serve the owners of the corporations they manage, that is, you know, the stockholders or whatever. And this is, this is condemned in this passage because that CEO is a servant to the people who own that business. He's running it for them as a servant to them. If you serve clients or customers, say as a carpenter, you are to count them worthy of all honor because they are not the master in a permanent sense, but in that project. If you serve a manager or employer, you're to count them worthy of respect. And, and children, this applies to you as well. You're to count your parents worthy of all honor. And let wives see, the Bible says, that they respect their own husbands. You're always to count those worthy of honor under whose authority you serve. Not just to treat them as worthy, but to count them as worthy. As soon as I say that, the question comes back, doesn't it? The one I said I would get to in a minute. On what basis can I count a mere man to be worthy of all honor? Don't you find that as soon as you're told to count a fellow sinner worthy of all honor, you begin to look for reasons that that person's not worthy? Like as soon as you're told that, whoa, you, know, you, you begin to like pull pieces out of him. You say, how can I count him worthy of all honor? He's just a man of clay, and he doesn't even realize he's a man of clay. Doesn't the Bible call us to not trust in princes? We sang it a while ago, didn't we? And noblemen, that men of high degree are a breath and a lie? Doesn't it say that? And indeed it does. It does say that. But our text says that you're supposed to treat such men as worthy of all honor. How do we work with that? God hasn't forgotten that the men he calls us to honor are nothing but dust and vanity, has he? He knows that far better than any of us do. But still, he commands you to honor them and even to count them worthy of all honor. Yes, you say, but what if he is an unbeliever? Am I still to count an unbeliever as worthy of all honor? Here's a man who rejects the true God and lives according to his own principles and laws. He doesn't love the Savior who shed his blood on the cross. He does not have the Holy Spirit to give him life from the dead. Uh, life, life from death and sin. How can I count such a man worthy of all honor? There's only one reason for it. You're to count him worthy of all honor because God is the one 
who has put him over you in your work. God has placed him where he is, and he has placed you where you are. That wasn't anybody else's decision, ultimately, but God's. You show respect for God by showing respect for the order that he has established. You show respect for God by showing respect for those who has placed over you in authority. There is no authority but that which is established by God. And even those in high places who do not acknowledge God still represent him in their places of authority. It doesn't matter what kind of man he is. You're to honor him because of his rank, not because of his character. Another way of saying that is to honor him because of the the rank, the place that God has given him. Of course, this does not mean that your master has absolute authority to do whatever he wants. Remember that he has been put in his place by God. It's only his lawful commands that you're required to obey. If he opposes, oppresses you or abuses you, you can appeal also to those who are over your master if those who are over your master will listen to you. Sometimes you're in a situation where they won't listen to you because they, they don't really care. For example, if your employer, though, is breaking his contract with you, you can go to the court about that. You can go to the judges about that. And you're actually appealing to authority. You're honoring God's authority and the placement that he has erected in the world. If your manager is breaking company policy, you can appeal to those that are over him in the company. If he's asking you to lie or to cheat, you must refuse to do that. No one has authority to command you to do what God has forbidden. But, if you, but you are still to honor your master regardless of his character. God has chosen to place him over you, and you find out God's will from his mouth. Again, unless it's something that's a violation. If you are a servant and you want to know what God wants you to do today, it's what your master's told you to do, as long as it's lawful before God. That's what you're to do. Failure to honor your superiors gives people occasion to blaspheme the name of God and his doctrine. As a Christian, you represent Jesus Christ and God the Father in this world. By honoring those that God has placed over you, you show the world that God is truly over all, even over the placement of a wicked man over you in authority. It is one thing to tell people that you believe that God is Lord over all. It's quite another for them to see you honoring your authorities because you believe that God has placed them there, that they are placed there by God. If they see you being slack at work, speaking ill of your manager and so on, they say, is that what his religion is all about? And so they speak evil of your God and his doctrine. They blaspheme the name of God. One of the worst things you can do for the cause of Christ is to show disrespect to your employer on the basis of self-righteousness. The worst attitude for a Christian is the one that says, he doesn't deserve my best because he's just an ungodly man who rejects my Savior. Our religion teaches us to be humble, not self-righteous. Apparently, some of the servants at Ephesus were feeling elevated as Christians and were not honoring their master. But this shouldn't surprise you. You know how skillful we all are in inventing arguments 
to excuse ourselves from difficult duties. Paul had to address this with Timothy at Ephesus because it was a problem. This passage illustrates that. One servant argues that he doesn't have to honor his master because he is an unbeliever. At the same time, the other servant argues that he doesn't have to honor his master because he's a believer. <laughs> so they, they, go, they, they, they find out all kinds of arguments, don't they? Everyone comes up with arguments for his own case. But Paul says that if your master is a believer, then that's all the more reason to count him worthy of all honor. Verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So, So you're benefiting that master who's a believer. You should work all the harder, it says. He says, teach and exhort these things. He is your brother in Christ. Too often this is wickedly used an excuse as an excuse to do half-hearted work. You know, Joe gets a new job working for a Christian, and he says, uh, this job will be great. I'll finally be working for a Christian. He won't be so demanding. He won't expect so much of me as, as that unbeliever that I used to work for. You don't want to hear an employer say that if you're the employee. I mean, you don't want to hear an employee say that if you're the employer. It betrays completely the wrong attitude about work and about your Christian brother. It reminds you, first of all, that the purpose of your work is to benefit others. That's supposed to be why you work. It speaks of those that you work for as those who are benefited by you, doesn't it? Too often we lose sight of that in our work. We look at it as something that we just have to slog through And we forget that the whole purpose is to benefit the people that we're serving, to be a blessing to them. We just want to get by. The question is not, how much does this this guy require of me, but how much can I get done for him? Why not? And this passage is emphasizing that this is especially to be your attitude when he is a believer. As a believer, he is is dearly beloved by, by Christ. He is dear to Christ just as you are. So dear to him that he went to the cross and and gave his life for him. Jesus taught that when we do anything for his people, he counts it as having been done for him. So when you're working for someone that's a believer, it's like you're working for Christ. We are members of his body because of the sweet union that we have with him by faith. So if you have a Christian master, it's a great blessing to serve him. By serving him, you have the opportunity to serve your Savior every day. You just say, this is great. I can pour out my love for Christ by serving this master. But still, in everyday life, it's not so easy to keep a Christian attitude about your work. Is it? (laughs) It's not always easy. The last thing you need is for a bunch of Christian teachers and pastors to come along and teach you that you don't have to count anybody worthy of all honor. Because if they tell you that, you'll latch on to that. That in Christ, you know, they, they, t- they tell you the, the lies. You know, in Christ we're all equals, not just regard, with regard to spiritual privileges, which is true, but with regard to our place in the world. Nobody's over another one. You know, that kind of, th- that kind of teaching. That's the teaching of the world today, and it often gets in the church. Every generation has known Christian teachers that speak against dominion, and who suggest that it is against God's design to have distinctions in authority. These teachers stir up their disciples to resent rather than to respect those that God has placed over them. 
This is certainly a common teaching in our society where not only authority in the workplace, but even the authority that God has established in the home is despised. It seems that this was exactly what the false teachers at Ephesus were teaching and believing. So there were Christian teachers there that were feeding people with this opposite doctrine. And it is not what they needed. He says, but you are not to have anything to do with this kind of teaching. This is what you are shown in verses 2 through 5. Let me say a word here about application. Paul, of course, is writing to Timothy, who is an evangelist at Ephesus, sent to urge certain ones to teach no other doctrine. And Timothy is told at the end of verse 2, teach and exhort these things. How ought you to apply these words if you're not a teacher? We need to look at it and say, if Timothy is commanded to teach and exhort that servants are to obey their masters, that means I am to do that too. As earnestly as he is to teach it, I am to receive it. So Timothy is admonished to teach these things. You're admonished then by implication to receive them. And when you read on about the false teachers in verses 3 through 5, how should you apply that? Well, obviously, you should learn to have a discerning ear so that you will be able to reject false teaching about these things when you hear it and not just swallow it up because it appeals to you. Little babies eat whatever is put in front of them. But you ought to be beyond babyhood. You, need more dis- you, you are to have more discernment than a baby. Just as you refuse to eat food that is corrupted, so you ought to refuse to receive teaching that is corrupted because it will make your soul sick just as food will make you sick if it's corrupted. Of course, these words also apply to you in whatever capacity you're called to teach. Because everybody has certain capacities where they teach. You're to encourage other believers to show respect to their superiors. Like one child with another child in the home would often have occasion to to bring that encouragement. I don't mean in a big kind of a high-handed way, but to, to encourage one another in this. Don't listen, to, or don't listen to another woman speaking ill of her husband without correcting her. Don't allow your children to reject your own authority. The problem is the doctrine of the false teach, teachers is appealing to the sinful corruption that remains in our hearts. Rather than teaching the slaves and everybody else to be content with their calling and to honor those that God has placed over them, these men... We're teaching something else, something that was contrary. They were teaching slaves to be discontent, that now that they were Christians, they should look for a better life. These teachers were teaching nothing other than what they themselves believed, as it says in verse 5. They are men of corrupt minds who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So they were teaching that the goal of godliness is worldly prosperity. Do we see any teachers like that today in the church? (laughs) The goal of godliness is worldly prosperity. Come near to God, and He'll make you rich and prosperous in this world. Isn't that appealing? There's thousands of people that listen to such nonsense. There are millions of versions of this. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to... uh, to, to, to not suffer. He, does, he doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to be a slave. Just turn on religious programming of any kind 
And this is the kind of teaching that you'll hear. How appealing this is to the sinful flesh. Because it's so appealing, it's popular. But such teaching is not at all, as verse 3 says, according to the, quote, wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine that accords with godliness. Notice that his full title is used here to emphasize his authority. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. As Lord, we are to obey him, not men who teach things contrary to him. As Jesus, he is the one who saves us from our sins, not men who teach other things. Their doctrine doesn't save anyone. As Christ, he is the one God anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king, not the men who invent their own doctrines for us to live by. How different are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ then from those that teach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? His word teaches you that you must go through much tribulation to enter his kingdom. It teaches you that you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. It teaches that all who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It teaches you that the one who is first in the kingdom is the one who is the servant of all. Paul has a lot to say about those who teach doctrine that is not true to Christ. And these are the reasons you ought to reject such teaching, however appealing it might be. He gives us reasons here. First, he says that such teachers are proud. The word literally means puffed up or full of smoke. This should be very obvious to us. Anyone who is so brazen as to set his words up against the words of Christ, he's got a problem with arrogance. It's a very pride, pride that brought about the fall. I have a better way, the arrogant man says. God says, don't eat the fruit. And I say, eat it and it will go well for you. It won't harm you. Paul insults such teachers in their pride. They think they're so innovative in their teaching. and They they have made some new discoveries about how to live a holy life. And people are flocking to hear them. They think they're smart. But Paul says that in fact, verse 4, they know nothing. So that's another reason we should... He essentially calls them pompous ignoramuses. Uh, those who teach that which is contrary to Christ, though they may think themselves to be wise and to be highly esteemed by others, truly know nothing. To be contrary to Christ's truth is to be out of touch, completely out of touch with reality, is to completely misunderstand the situation, what is actually going on. Paul goes on to say further that Such teachers are obsessed with disputes and arguments about words. It's always true with false teachers in the church. They are offended with God's words, so they come out arguing, disputing, twisting, uh, trying to overthrow God's word and what it teaches because they don't like it, what's taught by the faithful teachers they want to oppose. And because they introduce new doctrines, this always leads to great disruption in the church. Of course, they often blame those who continue to hold to the truth of being the ones causing the division, such as we see in the Presbyterian Church of Canada today, where, you know, like people that would oppose women's ordination, for example, are called divisive troublemakers. But God regards those who depart from the pure teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ 
to be the ones who are obsessed with disputes and arguments, not the ones who are speaking the truth. They're the ones who have the task of explaining away God's truth. There are so many problems that are caused by the introduction of other doctrine in the church. Just look at the terrible progression at the end of verse 4. There's so much here. You're teaching a contrary doctrine to what is being said here. It causes envy because both parties are concerned about who has the most disciples. You've got two parties now. Envy is the reason the Jewish teachers or church leaders determined to crucify Christ. Because he's got more disciples. He's taken away our disciples. Envy leads to strife because quarrels arise over the contrary teachings. Again, remember how the Jewish authorities in the church quarreled with Christ when he was here. And see how they continue to quarrel with those who hold his truth today. Strife leads to reviling, it says. That is, to speaking harshly and evil of others. See how they reviled Christ when he was here. They continually spoke ill of him to the people, trying to destroy his reputation among his disciples. Reviling leads to evil suspicions. Because whenever people are speaking that way, it always causes people begin to imagine ulterior motives and sinister plots and things like that. Uh, some truly thought that they were serving God when they, when they persecuted Christ and delivered him up to the cross. The end result is that their minds, as verse 5 shows, are corrupted like rotten fruit. The word would refer to rotten fruit. And they are destitute of the truth. This is what happens when Christ and his truth is rejected. The sad thing is that these false teachers take many disciples with them because their doctrine is so appealing to the flesh. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were bummed out with God for not giving them immediate prosperity. Where's the land with milk and honey? They, they thought they could obtain the kingdom of glory without first going through the battle that you have to go through in the kingdom of grace. They wanted the church triumphant without the church militant. They wanted resurrection without crucifixion. And so when false teachers come along, it's very easy for them to stir up. When they came along in Moses' day, it was very easy for them to stir up rebellion against Moses. Do you remember in Numbers 16, which we uh, looked at in the previous sermon that we had from Timothy? Dathan and Abiram stirred up the people against Moses and Aaron because you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. These men were teaching what? That godliness was a means of great gain. This is the kind of teaching that you fall right into if you allow yourself to be discontent. It starts with the discontentment, and then you end up refollowing false teachers. Therefore, you are urged to be content with your lot in life, whatever that may be. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 6. Don't you see you have so much more in Christ than what this world has to offer? It's better to be poor, a poor, overworked slave who is godly, than to be the richest man in the world who is ungodly. The promise of God is the promise that he will make us holy and without blame before him in love. It is a promise of godliness, not gold. Let me tell you what this promise of godliness is all about. 
Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned how if you really understood what we deserve, we would know that we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment from the hand of God because of our rebellion. But a person is godly when he is no longer on the wrong side of God. Not meaning that he has it better than others in this present world, but rather that God has accepted him and promised him everlasting life in glory, in heaven that is. Having godliness is having a right relationship with God. That's what godliness is. This is the most important and the most wonderful thing of all. So godliness with contentment is great gain. How do you obtain this godliness? Well, the way of godliness is laid out by God in his word, and it is this. Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to him as a sinner and ask him to make you godly. You become godly by turning from your own ways and trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take away your sins. By his suffering and death, your sins are washed away so that you can stand joyfully before the presence of God and receive his blessing forever. God won't accept anyone unless he has first been cleansed by Jesus Christ. And you have not been cleansed by him unless you have believed on him. What gain is yours when you have godliness? Think of it. To have been headed for everlasting destruction and to be turned around to inherit everlasting glory. To have been at enmity with God and now to be reconciled and at peace with God, with the one who alone has the power to bless or curse. To have been blind and rebellious and now to be given a new heart by him so that you can see and believe and keep his statutes and commandments and know his truth. What you have in this world becomes irrelevant besides riches like that. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You will go out of this world in the same way you came in as far as your worldly possessions. As Job said, Naked I came and naked I will return. Therefore, if you have the basic necessities, you should be thankful. This is more than you deserve. It is all the gift of God. So don't expect God to give you more than these just because you're a Christian. Paul plainly teaches elsewhere that as a Christian, you often have less of these things. He says that if our religion is judged by what we have in this life and there's no resurrection, then we're of all people most miserable. We should abandon it all, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection. But you see, there is a resurrection and a kingdom of glory as well. Don't set your heart then on the riches of this world. It will only lead to your ruin. It will distract you from the true grace that comes from godliness with contentment, the the true gain that comes from godliness with contentment. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. See here that it is not the acquisition or possession of riches that ruin you. Not the acquisition of them. But it's the desire to acquire them. Abraham, Job, Gaius, Lydia were rich, but they were not ruined by simply having 
riches. The rich young ruler was rich, and he was ruined by having great riches. You see, because his heart was set on riches, not because he had riches. Judas was, a, was never very rich, but the love of money destroyed him. The trouble comes when you set your heart on riches rather than godliness, or when you try to set your heart on both. Because as the Lord Jesus said about this very thing, you can't serve two masters. It is, it is righteousness, not riches, that you're to hunger and thirst for as a believer. Look at what happens when you desire to be rich. Verse 9 again. First, it says you fall into a temptation and a snare. A snare is a trap that you get caught in and that you can't get out of. The mouse goes for the cheese, but then suddenly, wham, he's caught. Perhaps even with the cheese in his very mouth. You get your eyes focused on the things that you have nothing that have that have nothing to do with godliness, and soon you're no longer able to focus on godliness anymore. It's completely irrelevant to you. It's completely wiped out. You fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts. It says, your deceived heart becomes a breeding ground for lusts. The love of money will cause men to neglect their families, all so they can have more to give their family. <laughs> I'm doing this so I can have more for my family and you're neglecting your family. The love of money will cause a young woman to choose to marry a rich man rather than a godly man. The love of money will cause a woman to forsake her calling as a mother in order to pursue a career for wealth. The love of money will lead to bondage and debt. Those who try to get their hands on more than they have go into debt. The love of money will lead you into a life of dishonesty, stealing, cheating, and lying or a life that tramples over other people and oppresses them in order to get an advantage over them, that lies about people to pull them down so you can advance yourself. The love of money will lead to fear, anxiety, high blood pressure, the inability to give thanks, the inability to worship because of distraction. The love of money will lead to Sabbath breaking. You will not be able to give up a day for the worship of God, especially mentally. The love of money will lead to fighting with your spouse over financial matters, with your siblings over who's going to get what part of the inheritance. The love of money will lead to continual dissatisfaction, either because you don't have what you want or because having obtained so much, you're still not satisfied. So often, there's a lot of people, a lot of people don't have anything and they're just as greedy as anyone else. They're, they're greedy and not having anything. Other people have a lot and the more they get, they still are greedy. These are foolish and hurtful lusts, it says, that no man would plan to fall into. But once he's caught in the snare of greed, then there's little way to turn back. He's driven to folly like a wild animal that gets a taste for blood. I don't think Judas probably started out his discipleship with plans to betray our Lord and say, where is this going to lead? I think that I'm going to betray him at the, you know, after, after a few years here. At first, he just took a little money from the money bag to meet a need, probably. And then he did it again. And then he did it again. And finally, he was ready to betray his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Foolish and hurtful desires that grow out of the desire for riches end up drowning you. They choke the very life out of you. As the parable of the sower teaches, the thorns and the weeds choke out the word of God so that it becomes unprofitable. The word bears no fruit in the soil of your, of your soul 
because there's no room for any fruit. The garden is all crowded. And all you have is all the love for all these different lusts and desires and passions and riches that you have. There's no more room for for godliness. The worst thing of all, the love of money will lead you to abandon your faith, to apostatize. Your eyes become so focused on money that you can't see the riches of God in glory through Jesus Christ. You choose a good prophet over a good conscience. It can start out very subtly. In verse 10, Paul says that there were many who had indeed strayed from the faith because of the love of money. He didn't say, oh, it hardly ever happened. He said there's many that have done that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not about losing your salvation. Those who are saved will respond to these warnings. And that's why these warnings are given, that you might respond and continue in Christ. But those who are lost are in danger that they will be swallowed up. And if you start going down that pathway, you can't have confidence in your faith. What an unhappy ending for the discontented soul. My friends, don't spend all your days fretting about your status in the world. Godliness is the thing to pursue. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? You can't take your riches with you, but godliness is profitable for all things, for the life which now is and the life which is to come. See the great love of our Lord Jesus Christ who has told us these things so plainly. He has told you exactly where you'll end up if you desire riches and love money. It is a path of destruction and perdition. You will pierce yourselves through with many sorrows. But he has also told you exactly where you will end up if you pursue godliness with contentment. So he's made it very plain to us. Great gain is where you'll end up. You'll inherit eternal life, which will consist of all all that divine power and grace can bestow on you. Please stand and let's give thanks to our God. Lord, we're so very thankful for the inheritance that you have promised to us in Jesus Christ. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that will never fade away. And we pray that you would give us great confidence in what you have promised and that we would not go astray, O Lord, wondering after this thing and wondering after that thing and filling our hearts up to crowd out any desires for your kingdom and for godliness. We pray that we would realize, Lord, the significance of these words that, that Paul has spoken to Timothy here in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6. We thank you, Lord, that, that you have been pleased to make these things known to us as a way of warning us so that we won't go down this pathway to destruction because of your great love for us. You have made it very plain. This way leads to destruction and this way leads to great gain. We pray that we would be wise, that we would choose the wise path. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything that we need in this world to serve you in the way that you want us to serve you. We don't need to be discontent and dissatisfied. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know how to use 
things when we have more things and how to use things when we have less things. And we pray that in all cases that we would be content with what you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies to us. Thank you for the hope that we have that is laid up for us in eternity in Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Now let's sing a song of commitment. It's Psalm 131. God be merciful to you and bless you and cause his face to shine upon you that his way may be known on earth, his salvation to all nations. Amen. Amen.